catching up. Good morning. It is always a pleasure to be here and to uh, share with you good folks. I thank Pastor Chuck for his willingness to share the pulpit with me. And as I said, a pleasure to be with you. I think highly of this congregation. My affiliation with this church has been now more than three decades. So uh, I thank you. I want to read a passage from Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, beginning at the opening verse. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. If you have your Bibles, that's great, that's better. If you don't, it's up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. A few days later, when Jesus again, again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. And this, this amazed everyone. They praised God saying, we've never seen something, anything like this. We've never seen anything. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So why couldn't the paralytic get in the house? Why couldn't they get him into the house? Well, all right. (laughs) Doug comes up with the obvious. He couldn't walk. Thank you, son. But he can't get in because of the crowds. Now, that frankly confuses me. Wouldn't common courtesy, just plain old common courtesy say, hey, look, there's this guy. He's on a mat. He's on a stretcher. Four guys are helping him. He wants to get to Jesus. Let me move over and at least let him in. Wouldn't they part the sea of people that are there for a paralyzed man to get through? Wouldn't that just be common courtesy? And if not common courtesy, how about compassion? There but for the grace of God go I. That could be me. I've got a brother. I know a friend. There's a neighbor of mine that's paralyzed. Let's, uh, let's make way for this guy. Let's, 
let's let him in. Nobody. Nobody seems to say, man, that's a shame. Let me help. All you need is one person, right? In a crowd like that, all you need is one person to stand up and go, hey, wait a minute, let's let this guy through. Not one of them stands up. On top of that, it's, it's even more confusing to me because of the role of hospitality in Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, for that matter, in Middle Eastern culture, the role of hospitality is enormous. You are kind to strangers, to those that are infirm, to those that are struggling, to those that have problems, just to a neighbor, just anybody. You're supposed to go out of your way to help them out. If they, if they need a coat, give them two. If they need you to walk a mile with them, walk two. Jesus teaches this kind of stuff because it's so ingrained a part of Jewish culture. You remember Elijah? And uh, he's in the middle of this drought. <coughs> There's no food. It hasn't rained in three years. And he goes to this town called Zarephath, and there's a widow there. And the widow is on her way back to her house. She's going to make the final meal, because there's no food anywhere. She's going to make the final meal for her and her son, and then they're going to starve to death. And Elijah sees her and says, hey, take me home and feed me a, a meal. Now, the audacity of that is just enormous. But in Jewish culture, that's pretty normative. I'm a stranger. You're responsible to help me. Amazingly, this woman who has only enough meal to fix one meal, only enough oil to fix one meal, and is going to split it between her and her son, says, no, we don't have enough. Go find your own. No, she says, come home. We'll split it three ways. The idea that hospitality is to be given is not optional. It's ingrained in the Jewish spirit and soul and nature. They are hospitable people. But here, here, hospitality goes out the window. Common courtesy goes out the window. Concern for others, some kind of compassion, all of them go out the window and no one, not one single person stands up and says, here's somebody that's in need. Let's get him to Jesus. And if you think that's bad, what's worse? Anybody figure it out? How come Jesus doesn't bring him in? Now, now I'm on shaky ground, right? Jesus doesn't do anything. He doesn't say, hey, let this guy through. He doesn't say, hey, there's this guy out, outside, he's paralyzed, bring him forward, bring him on. He does, in essence, nothing. And I find that at least a little disturbing. I mean, this, this is the same Jesus that has compassion on the crowds. This is the same Jesus that weeps over Jerusalem. This is the same Jesus that loves all of his disciples. And according to John 3, he loves the world. And yet that love, that compassion, doesn't extend to a paralytic that's just outside the door being carried in by four friends because he can't walk himself. And it's not like Jesus doesn't have a healing power. That's what he's been doing, right? And Jesus simply ignores the situation. <coughs> when it comes to the paralytic, Jesus never lifts a finger. He never lifts the finger to the crowd. He never says, part the ways. He never says, get this guy in. He doesn't even recognize that the guy is there. I think that's pretty cold, don't you? Why would Jesus, who is willing to die for the human race, for you and for me, for everybody, 
Why would Jesus intentionally be callous toward a man in such great need? Now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, well, Jesus didn't even know he was there. I mean, after all, it was crowded, and they couldn't even get toward the front of the house. So Jesus probably didn't even see him or know that he was there. You sure you want to use that one? Jesus knows, you know, everything. He's the one who knows that Judas is about to betray him and at the Last Supper gives him the meal and says, you're about to betray me. He's the one that looks at Peter and says, before the cock crows three times, you'll deny me. Before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. He goes to the woman that's in Samaria at the well, and he knows. He, he's never met this woman before. He's never been to this village, and he knows how many husbands she's had, and he knows that the guy she's sleeping with, she's not married to. He knows these things. He knows when the woman touches the hem of his garment when he's being crushed by the crowd, but he knows that this one woman who has a flow of blood reaches out and touches the hem of his garment, and he stops and he says, who touched me? And the disciples look at everybody and they go, what are you kidding me? Who touched you? Everybody. He says, no, somebody touched me and I felt the power go out. Jesus simply knows. And if that's not enough, in verse 6 and 7, he knows what the teachers of the law are thinking. By the time he gets to the end of the story, he, it says, Mark says, he knows what the guys on the front row are thinking. If he knows what they're thinking, then how can he not know that there's this guy outside the house, just outside the front door that's being carried by four people because he can't walk himself. You can't say that Jesus didn't know about the situation that he didn't know about the paralytic, that he didn't know about the tragedy that was unfolding just outside the front door. So why? Why does the most compassionate person in the history of the world simply ignore the need of this particular man? How can he turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to the suffering of this paralytic and to the concern of the four men that are carrying him. It can't be because Jesus doesn't think he's worthy of being healed. Boy, we've used that one, haven't we? Well, you know, he's a sinner. He got himself into this trouble. That doesn't seem to matter to Jesus. By the time they lower him down through the roof and he's down there on the ground still paralyzed, what does Jesus say to him? Be healed? No. He says, your sins be forgiven. Jesus doesn't have any problem with this. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that every person that Jesus talks to <laughs> and every person that he heals throughout his ministry is, you know, a, um, what's the word? Yeah, sinner, that's the word, that's the right one. Yeah, that's it. So it can't be that he doesn't deserve the healing because he's a sinner. Jesus already knows that about all the people that come to him and all the people that he interacts. And Jesus is incredibly willing to forgive sin, which is obvious by the end of this story. Sin is not the issue. This is a story that highlights Jesus' compassion for those who struggle and who have sin. At least the end of the story does, but I'm still trying to figure out why doesn't he let the guy in at the beginning? Why doesn't he express concern before these four guys make a fuss by tearing up the roof? Before they do the gymnastics of climbing up carrying up the roof and lowering him down. Jesus has to have a reason that he waits. Instead of doing it at the front door, he waits 
until this extraordinary scene unfolds where the roof is destroyed and the man is lowered down. What is it that Jesus is waiting for? Why is it that Jesus decides to do this healing at the end of the story and not at the beginning of the story, which is what we would expect? And let me tell you that it's pretty easy to find but the reason that we don't find it and we don't know it is because we don't know how to properly study Scripture. I'm sorry if that seems harsh. No, I'm not sorry if that seems harsh. I think this is incredibly important. See, when you study Scripture, here's the key. When you study Scripture, you have to realize that stories never start at the beginning. Let me say that one again. Stories never start at the beginning. The beginning of a story is never the beginning of the story. There's always some antecedent. There's always some backstory. There's always some precedent. There's always something that takes place in the context that lets you know what is really going on here. And that's exactly what happens in this situation. Jesus has some things going on in Mark chapter 1 that if you don't understand them, you won't understand why he's slow to act in Mark chapter 2. So let's look back at Mark chapter 1, uh, a verse here, in verse 38. In verse 38 of chapter 1, this is when Jesus is beginning his ministry. You know, he's already been out in the wilderness. He's been tempted. John the Baptist has been arrested. Jesus is stepping into the role of, of John the Baptist. Well, let me not pass over that so quickly. The nation of Israel has not had a prophet in two to four centuries. It's been 200 to 400 years since they've had a prophet. Imagine that. This is a... This is a nation that's been filled with prophets from Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah down to Malachi, Zephaniah, and Jonah, and, uh, and Haggai. So, I mean, they're, they're filled, their history is filled with prophets. But for the last two, three, four hundred years, there hasn't been a prophet in all of Israel until John the Baptist comes on the scene. Suddenly now, a prophet is in their midst and everybody's gone, God's up to something. Though he wasn't up to something before. But nevertheless, they say, oh, this must be something special. And it must be traumatic for this people. He gets such a following. People are coming out into the wilderness to find him and to be baptized by him. It must be traumatic because John the Baptist ends up being arrested by some officials who don't like him. And he's eventually going to be beheaded. He's eventually going to be killed. And so their prophet, the first one in hundreds of years, is now gone. Who's going to take his place? And Jesus steps up. John the Baptist foretold this. They pointed to him, said, follow him. He's the guy. And Jesus follows in the footsteps of John the Baptist in so many ways. It's the same message that he's going to be preaching. Repent. Uh, be baptized. Uh, he starts his ministry around water, whereas John the Baptist is at the Jordan. That's the water he's using. Jesus is around the Sea of Galilee. That's the, that's the water that he's using. So the, he steps into the shoes of this great prophet to take over this prophetic ministry. Several of Jesus' disciples were first John the Baptist's disciples. So he's taking over the mantle. He's, he's getting in. Jesus is beginning with this, a preaching ministry. Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages, he says, so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. In Jesus' first trip to Capernaum, this is his second trip, in his first trip to Capernaum, he's teaching and preaching, which is what he says his mission is, why he came. But... A demoniac, a, a, a guy that is filled with his evil spirit, interrupts it all. And Jesus deals with him, casts the demon out of him, and the guy ends up in his right mind. 
That one experience sets Jesus off in a course that is powerful and dynamic, but it's a healing ministry. He starts going to towns and because they've heard about what he happened in Capernaum. They bring all their sick, all their diseased, all the ill, all the demon-possessed. They bring them all, and Jesus is healing everybody. Here's the problem. The problem is the healing ministry has begun to overwhelm the preaching and teaching ministry. And Jesus then says, as the verse here says, let's go somewhere else. I got to get away from this crush of the superstar spectacular mentality that only wants me to stand up and do the miracles. And I got to get back to the preaching and teaching ministry because that, and this is incredibly important, that, he says, is why I have come. So when the paralytic arrives at the front door and Jesus is doing a preaching and teaching ministry, that's why he's hesitant. He's not going to turn this most important moment into a spectacular spectacle by doing that healing. He has something that he has to teach. Jesus knows he's got a limited time to communicate the gospel to these people who have been so confused by what's been taught them through the Pharisees and the Sadducees that he's got to set out a new course. And if he lets the healing ministry take over, his preaching and teaching ministry, which is his primary goal, will get lost. So when the paralytic arrives, Jesus is not going to upset his ministry to reach out to the paralytic at that moment. He will not be, uh, he'll not be distracted from teaching and preaching the gospel until <laughs> he gets distracted. These four guys go to extraordinary lengths, tearing up the roof, bringing him down. How'd they get him up on the roof? I got no clue. Show me up the ring spout. I got no idea. How do you do that with a paralyzed guy? They go to such lengths and they cause such a commotion that Jesus can't help but recognize, you know, the elephant in the room. But did you notice? He doesn't heal him. You missed that one, huh? He doesn't heal him. He's there to preach the gospel. He's there to preach and teach. So instead of healing the guy, what does he say to the guy? Your sins are forgiven. Jesus is not going to be dissuaded, not going to be distracted from the message that he has. Is it important for this man to be healed? Absolutely. But in Jesus' mind, hear this, in Jesus' mind, it's more important that the gospel be preached, that the truth be told, then this guy be healed. Now, Jesus is so compassionate, compassionate that he's going to heal the guy, but he wants everybody to know that what he's been teaching to the crowd, he can now show in this paralyzed man, because I'm sure he's been teaching about repentance. That's his message, right? So if he gets a chance to teach about repentance, what a great visual... What a great illustration to have this guy. What would it be like if the, suddenly the roof got torn open here and this guy came out? Oh. <laughs> Trustees would be looking and going, oh, man. Should it distract us from the teaching and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And Jesus' answer is, I'm going to keep teaching while this man gets healed. So the first thing I'm going to do is forgive his sins. That's what I've been teaching about. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. Gospel in a nutshell. Preaching forgiveness. And I want you to hear this. Preaching forgiveness is more important than healing a paralytic. I want that to sink in for a minute. 
preaching about forgiveness, teaching about the nature of God that heals our souls by forgiving our sins is more important than healing your body of the malady and the suffering that you have. I don't mean to say that God is disconcerned or unconcerned or cares nothing about your suffering or about the paralytic suffering. Just the opposite. He cares a great deal. But in the midst of that, Jesus is going to keep teaching about repentance, about forgiveness, and the fact that salvation is a greater miracle than healing somebody who is a paralytic. Healing is a powerful act. Healing is a powerful act. It's an important movement of the Holy Spirit upon somebody's life. And if you have never been in a service where somebody has been divinely and miraculously healed, you have not experienced the power and wonder of that moment. And it is palpable. It's real. But it cannot. It dare not supersede the need, the importance, and the reality of teaching that the healing of the soul is more important than the healing of the body. And I'll tell you why. I know this will be shocking news to all of you, but folks, y'all going to die. Yeah, you guys too. So far, there's a 100% chance that human beings are going to, you know, kick the bucket at some point. So if death, if the onslaught of disease in the body, if something is going to happen to all of us that's going to cause us to cease to breathe and exist, wouldn't it be more important for your soul to be saved, your spirit to be right with God, than just have your body healed? Because the body being healed is a temporary fix to a permanent problem. I would love for God to heal my knee and my back. I've got arthritis in them and I, you know, I stumble up the stairs. That'd be wonderful. I'd love to be able to go back out and play basketball. I did that for all my life. I'd like to go out and play some golf. I can't swing a club because of the arthritis in my back. I'd like to be healed. Not nearly as important than the fact that my heart is right with God. Jesus is making sure that you and I know how powerful and important that is. Now, I'm very conscious of where I am. Probably more so than many of you. This congregation was pastored back in the day by one of the great pioneers of the Church of God, F.G. Smith. F.G. Smith used to be head of the Gospel Trumpet Company in Anderson, in the Church of God. It was kind of the premier position. And he was in charge of camp meeting. And in camp meeting, every year, they had healing services because healing has been such a tremendous part of the gospel DNA of the Church of God. So much so that in his office, F.G. Smith had up on the wall the crutches and braces and other kinds of things that people had worn to the healing service had gotten healed and had taken off, thrown away the crutches and gotten rid of the braces. He had them mounted up on his wall as trophies, testimony, to what God can do. Powerful, wonderful thing. And F.G. Smith had that kind of emphasis in his teaching and preaching. And I am not here to disagree with him. Healing is a powerful thing. But I'm also conscious that at the same time that F.G. Smith was putting together these, these healing services at the, the old tabernacle in Anderson, where thousands and thousands of people would go, people left that service, the healing service, not healed. 
and would make their way down to where Charles Naylor lived, lived in an apartment. Those of you that have been to Anderson, right across from what was Old Main or Decker Hall now. Charles Naylor, great songwriter, you sing some of his hymns. Charles Naylor was um, 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 paralyzed, was paralytic. He's down in Florida putting up a tent for a tent revival the Church of God was going to do. Turned his back, walked away, the tent pole had fallen off, broke his back. He couldn't get out of bed. So he couldn't go to the healing service because he was bedridden. But these people that would go to the healing service in the tabernacle and not get healed and walk away disillusioned, somehow, some way, Spirit of God leading, would find their way into the living room of a paralyzed man laying on a bed you know what he'd do? He'd preach the gospel to them. He'd preach the gospel to them and ask them to be saved. Then he would anoint them for healing, lay hands on them, and these people would get healed by a man who couldn't get out of bed. Explain that one to me. The only way I can understand that fully is that Forgiveness of sin and the healing of your soul is of greater priority to God and should be of greater priority to us than the healing of the body. Not that healing our bodies is to be second class by any stretch of the imagination. You want to be healed? Let's anoint you and lay hands on you as the Bible calls for. And let's ask for the, for the healing presence to heal your body. Amen, amen, amen. But today, our worship is a success if somebody seeks forgiveness of sins from God. That's the priority. Healing is a conduit for the forgiveness of sins. Healing is a conduit for worship. It's a conduit for fellowship and mission. But the forgiveness of sins is still the priority. The healing, the salvation of the soul is still the priority. When we go out into the world and we're on mission, we're on ministry, whether it's here in Talmadge or in the county or in the state or wherever we're going, you got people going on the mission trips, wherever they're going, what's the priority? It's the salvation of souls. And if healing takes place, praise God. We don't have anything to do with that anyway. Last time I checked, I got nothing. Zip. But if God wants to heal somebody, I praise God, let's do it. But if somebody gets healed, I'm going to stand up and preach the gospel. You better believe. Because that healing is only a conduit for the message about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You keep the focus on the main thing. Somebody once said, the main thing is the main thing. That's what Jesus does. There's a book, I, I got it years ago and read it, it's a business book called Good to Great. And in that book, the author makes this claim. He said, the biggest obstacle to greatness is good. He said, if you do good and you're successful because you do good, that's the biggest obstacle to greatness because once you do something good, you're satisfied. And you'll never push on to greatness. Well, the same thing is true with the gospel. If all we did was healing, and that became the do-all, end-all, and be-all, that would be good, but we'd never push on through to the greatness of God, which the greatness of God is that he heals our souls and forgives our sins. Come on, can I get an amen on that? It is, therefore, wholly appropriate, maybe even important, that today we take communion. Because right there in front of us, as we, as we prepare, right there in front of us is the gospel itself. It's wrapped up in this, this combination of bread and juice and wine, grape juice. It's, it, it's, it's caught up in the bread and the fruit of the vine. Now, the reason that it's caught up in that is because it explains the entirety of the gospel. It explains the priority of the gospel 
Because the priority of the gospel is that Jesus died. He died on the cross. He forgave us of our sins. Therefore, every time we take communion, we are confronted with the reality that we must yield ourselves to Jesus Christ in order to be forgiven of our sins. We can't simply forgive ourselves. We must be forgiven from the soul on out for the things that we have done that are sinful, that are wrong, that need that kind of healing. And so we, we eat this bread because it represents the body of Jesus Christ because Jesus died, sacrificed himself, put himself in the place of the Jewish system of having an animal to be sacrificed for your sin or an animal to be sacrificed for the nation Jesus said, no, 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 I'll go to the cross. I'll be the sacrificial lamb. I'll die not just for an individual, not just for a, a nation or a country or a people. I'll die for the whole world. And how does he do that? How does that sacrifice make that, make that ability for forgiveness come to us? Well, that's because his blood is shed on the cross. You have to realize in the Jewish system, when they would want to be forgiven, whether it was a nation or an individual, they would bring an animal, typically a lamb, and they would, they would sacrifice the animal. They would kill the animal. When they sacrificed the animal, they would take a cup, they had a special cup, and some of the blood from the animal would come into the cup. That cup would be offered up to God, splashed on the altar, because the Jews believed, and there's rightly so, that the life of the animal was in its blood. If all the blood drains out of you, you'd be dead. So life is attributed to the blood. So when Jesus goes to the cross and is nailed to the cross and is, and is eventually cut with a spear in the side and blood dry, dry, uh, comes out, he's sacrificing, he's using his blood as the sacrifice, he's using his body as the sacrifice so that you and I can be forgiven. So every time we come together and we come together and take communion, it's because we are saying there are a lot of things that are important to us. Healing, job, what's going to happen to our kids, what's going to take place, where are we going in the future. There's a hundred, a thousand things that we have on our plate. But when we come together and take communion, we remind ourselves that this is the thing. This is the most important thing. Now, we're not of the, uh, of the ilk that believes that these elements, the juice and bread, are transubstantiated, it's called. That we're not of the ilk that says that they are turned into the body and blood of Christ. There are some churches that teach that. I cast no aspersions on them. We don't. But we don't think it's just bread and wine either. We don't think it's just ordinary bread and juice. I mean, it is. I, somebody, I went to the store and got this stuff. I mean, it's not like we have the holy store that we go to to get. But something happens when we gather like we're about to do with communion. Something happens. I don't know if it's to the elements or if it's to us. Because at this moment, and ushers, why don't you come forward? As, as these elements are being revealed, as the, the bread is being opened, the juice is being opened, what we believe is that, you know, God is present here. And that in some way, in some sense, there's a real presence that is surrounding this moment and this experience and this bread and this juice. It's not that they save us, because it's just bread and juice. But oh my, the act of coming, the act of taking, oh, that's forgiveness. That has the ability to forgive. It has the power to forgive. Why? 
because Jesus is here. In the historical liturgy of the church, there is a part of the liturgy that is said by most every church that uses liturgy at this point. And it is a proclamation that the officiant, the pastor's out, brings this. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's what we celebrate and proclaim with this. We proclaim that Christ has died. Jesus died on a cross. But we also proclaim that Jesus is risen. He didn't stay in the grave. He didn't stay on the cross. He didn't stay dead. He was risen from the dead. And we proclaim his continued relevancy because there's going to come a moment of time, just checking, because we don't know when, when Jesus may return because he says he is going to return and every eye shall see him and every tongue will confess. So every time we take communion, we are proclaiming the gospel and making sure that we don't get sidetracked by the paralytic on the mat that's just outside the door. As important as he is and his body is, this is the main So let's pray, and then I'll give you some instructions. Oh, great God of the universe, you who sent Jesus into this world to die a sinner's death, though he himself had never known sin. You who let your only son, not the one you had to spare, but your only son, be sacrificed for our sins. We humble ourselves we come before you and ask for forgiveness, for cleansing, for strength, for hope. We confess not just our failures, but we confess this day our need to you. For we are incomplete and incapable without you. So we would ask you to bless these elements in some way, but even more so, O oh Lord, would you bless us as we come, as we come down the aisle, as we receive these elements, as we take them back to our seats, and then eventually as the community of faith, we eat and drink together. Bless us as we do this. In Jesus' name. Let me give you a couple of instructions. You can play if you want. Let me give you a couple of instructions. First of all, this table does not belong to us. It's not mine. It's not the church's. This is the Lord's table. So it doesn't matter whether you attend here regularly, you've never been here before. The table is open. We don't check IDs at the door. And we don't ask you to check something off before you come. The table is open to all. We are even of the mind. This is a concept that John Wesley taught, and I believe this. That it's possible that even the person who is not saved, in getting up out of their pew and walking down to the table, may find salvation in the coming. That's why the table's open, because we never know what God may do. I encourage you to come, to come with an open heart, to come with a contrite heart, to come willing to receive, to be forgiven, to be healed, to be immersed in the power and love of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. What I'm going to suggest is that the side sections, that you go first. And we'll start from the back. That the side sections would go first. You'd come out into the aisle, come down, 
take the elements, and then go back by the far side. When the two side groups are done, then we'll go to these two. And I'd like for you to do the same kind of thing, go into this aisle or into this aisle, and down receive the elements and go back by the center aisle. I'd like for you to keep the elements rather than take them. And then as a sign of our communal life together, the sign that we are a church together, we will eat and drink at the same time. Let us begin by opening our hearts and coming forward. So side group, back at the back, if you'd start, come on down. are holy moments I love to just watch and to see those coming and receiving it encourages my faith and makes me stronger should give you hope and joy. <coughs> now the center groups beginning at the far end, if you'll come down those aisles. take and then go back by the center aisle back to your seat. There's a testimony of faith going on here. Count up the years of those who have believed and have served the Lord that have passed in front of you today. Let it encourage your heart. And may you know from young to old that God is still present. God is still active. God is still alive. God is still working. Maybe it's because I've reached that age, point of my life. But I'm conscious today of the sacrifice that some have made just in walking to the table. That they have endured pain and suffering, agony, just to get up out of their seats and to make this walk. The sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice of his life is but one of the sacrifices that's done in communion. We too sacrifice things as we come. And we should be honored for that. And so, 
as we have come individually and taken these things. Now we move into the role of church, of the community of faith. For we are one together. We are one in him. Jesus prayed that we would be one. And the taking of communion means in some ways that we are united in him. United in our faith and in belief that Jesus is the one who heals. That he is the one through whom forgiveness exists. And so we take and we eat and we take and drink together. In Jesus' name. I want you to stand. And Doug, if you don't need to say anything else, here's my dismissal for you. <clears throat> I want this dismissal to be a form of what we call the passing of the peace. I want you to turn to two people. And I want you to either shake their hands or fist bump. I know we still got COVID issues. I understand. Or if you prefer just to go up to one another and somebody put their hands like this and the other person put their hands around them. And just say, I am a child of God and I love you. Do that to two people. And after you're done, you are dismissed. <laughs> 